Now let's pray together. Lord, as we look at your word today, I acknowledge that I'm asking you to do something that only you can do. I'm asking you to bring change in my heart and the hearts of everyone here who listens that only you can bring, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would learn today and every day to die to self and to live for you. Lord, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would afflict us, but also that you would heal us. That you would strike us, but in order to bind us up again. Lord, I pray that your word would change us today. That we'd leave this place more in love with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 1, says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does, not he, he, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So I have a question for you. Who is the most important person in the world today? When I ask that question, I'm not asking who's the most important person in the world to you. Of course, you know, we may say our spouse or a child or a friend or a parent. Not saying who's the most important person to you, but who's the most important person in the world today? That question was asked a few years ago. It was an online poll, so nothing official. But the choices were, number one, the president. Number two, CEO of the largest tech company. Number three, the richest person in the world. Number four, the person with the most social media followers. And number five, the pop star with the most hits. Those were the choices. And the overwhelming majority of people chose the president, 60%, because uh, within the office of the, the president, there's a lot of power. And so the president's a very important person. And so if the president moves somewhere, there's you know, dozens or maybe even hundreds of agents that go and prepare the way, that drive the president around, that make sure that he's safe everywhere that he goes. And, 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 you know, look at lists of people who are kind of important throughout history. Presidents are kind of at the top of the list. But there's also other people um, who are at the top of the list as well, people who have influence and power. Uh, today, who would those people be? People like, of course, President Joe Biden, uh, Donald Trump, Mark Zuckerberg, owns Facebook and uh, Instagram, uh, Elon Musk, uh, Taylor Swift. Uh, anybody try to get tickets for Taylor Swift? Did you get them? Oh, Nice. Um, I didn't try to get him, but I, I didn't know it was just a frenzy to try to get him. The wait list was, was just crazy to just try to get tickets 
um, and you know you had to get on that list for just the opportunity to buy tickets. Um, and these are people that are kind of important in our culture. And then even outside of our culture, there's other people that are important. Uh, maybe people that we don't necessarily like, like President Xi of China or Vladimir Putin uh, of Russia. And these people are important because they're powerful. They hold a lot of influence. They have uh, access to nuclear warheads and, and vast armies and can move them at will. And so these are the people that our, our culture often considers to be important. And what is the thing that kind of brings these people together? It's power. People who are powerful are people in our culture that are considered to be important. And, and these are, and this is true basically throughout any culture. Uh, the president is considered to be important because of what he can do, the executive orders that he can pass, uh, the influence he has over legislation. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is considered important because of the influence he has. He can just change a few things on Facebook that can then change, you know, affect millions of people's lives and advertisers. Uh, Elon Musk can post a picture of a rocket and get millions and millions of views, not because it's an amazing picture of a rocket, but because he's the richest person in the world and owns part of Tesla and Twitter, etc. And so people who have power in our culture are considered to be people who are important. Uh, think about it this way. Let's say you or I needed to have surgery today. We had an emergency situation. We had to be rushed to the hospital, and we need to have surgery tomorrow morning. What would happen? We'd be rushed to the locust, local hospital, and whoever happened to be on call, you know, whether that, you know, maybe that doctor is really good, maybe they're not so good, but whoever happened to be on call, they would be called in to perform that surgery. But if you were a really influential person like the president or the richest person in the world and that same thing happened you might have people that were flying in from Walter Reed you'd have experts that were zooming in and consulting on the situation and you'd have all the best resources at your disposal because in our culture if you have power you're important if you're powerful then you matter you're worthy of more time effort and resources. The same thing is tr was true in Jesus' day. It's true throughout every culture. People who have power, people who are considered to be important. And in Jesus' day, the disciples were asking this question among themselves. Matthew doesn't actually tell us exactly that they were debating this, but the other gospel writers do. They were debating the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the best? Who's the greatest? Who mo holds the most influence? And, and I think there were two things that kind of brought about this question. Number one, Jesus has just told the disciples that he's about to die and leave the earth. And so part of the question, part of the reason they were questioning this, where they were probably thinking to themselves, like, after Jesus, who's the greatest? Who's going to take over? Who's going to be our leader after Jesus is gone? Is it going to be like Peter, who Jesus said he was the rock that, that he's going to build his church on? Or John, who he just had a special, Jesus had a special heart for him? Or James, that had this insight and wisdom? Like, who's going to be the leader? Who's going to be the greatest to take over for Jesus after he's gone? Another thing that precipitated this was, um, we see just before this passage, the end of chapter 17, the tax collectors come to, G to Jesus and his, his disciples and they asked the disciples, do your ask the disciples, does your master pay the temple tax? Uh, this was a religious tax. It was something that was um, brought about to maintain the, the temple the, and the synagogue. Um, and so Jesus basically says that the sons of the kingdom aren't required to pay that tax because they're sons of God. They're not required to fund that. 
But he says, nevertheless, not to cause offense, go and pay the tax. And he gives instructions for how to do that. But after this, the disciples are probably riding pretty high. They're thinking, like, we don't even have to pay this tax. Like, we're, we are pretty cool that everybody else has to pay this temple tax. And our master says, like, we're not, this doesn't even apply to us. And so they're debating this question, who is the greatest among us? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they're, again, they're probably expecting, well, Jesus is going to say Peter or James or Andrew or John. But what does Jesus do? He calls a little child before him and he says this truly I say to you unless you turn and become like children you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is a child and those like a child well, what is what does this mean what does it mean to turn and become like little children now before I had a, a child I'd look at this passage and think about it as in terms of like Jesus is saying we need to have this mental quality of humility because you know children are so humble. And then I had a toddler and I realized children are not really that humble. Children can be a little bit self-absorbed and a little bit selfish. And of course there's this naivety and innocence about children that you know is is praiseworthy. But when it comes to just humility and this mental quality of like considering others better than yourself and 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 you know, denying self, children are not necessarily the textbook example of that. It's something that, you know, needs to be learned. So what is Jesus talking about in this passage? What is he talking about when he talks about uh, turning and becoming like a child, humbling oneself in terms of children? What is it that children exemplify that Jesus is pointing us to? Well, I think to understand what he's talking about, I think we need to understand, first of all, kind of different cultural views of children. Now, in our day and age, we have kind of two different views when it comes to children. On the one hand, you have some people uh, that are not, you know, don't value children all that much. You know, and there's this growing movement among couples, this kind of a historic rise of couples who decide, you know, we're never going to have children. Um, and that we see, you know, we, we've seen this it, it just exploding exponentially. Um, and so there's some people that are just, they just don't value children in the sense that they see children as kind of an inconvenience to uh, the good life. And, and so sometimes that can even go to the extreme of, of maybe even doing away with a child that's, that, that's already been conceived because it seemed like you know, that children are kind of an inconvenience. So that's kind of one view in our culture. But then the other view in our culture is for those who are parents, we love our kids. Like, we adore our kids, and sometimes maybe we even idolize our kids. And, and we want our kids to have the best opportunities that they can have. We do anything that we can to protect them. We want them to get into a good school. We want them to get a good job. We want them to have good extracurricular activities. Like, we just want the best for them, and we just love them and adore them and, and have this uh, incredible uh, dedication and devotion to them. Now, that's how it is in our culture there's you know two kind of views either you know children are an inconvenience or it's like we adore idolize our children and of course there's people in between but that's our culture but back in day, Jesus day it was a little bit different and there's two things today that would have been very unusual back then number one it would be very unusual that anyone didn't have children of course there's no birth control so things happened a lot more frequently um, but apart from that people consider children to be wealth 
Um, there wasn't any social security kind of safety net. And so uh, you had children for one reason, because children were going to take care of you after you were old. If you didn't have children to take care of you, you were in trouble. And so it would be very unusual for someone not to have children voluntarily. It, you know, if, they were, if someone didn't have children, it was probably because they were medically unable to or for some other reason. The second thing that would be very unusual today is that it would be very unusual that if you had children that you didn't lose several of them. Today, the infant mortality rate, the chances of a child making it to their 15th birthday is about 99% in our country. So it's really good odds. But up until about 1900, or I'm not sure exactly when it switched, about 1900, the number was pretty constant throughout different cultures and different time frames from the beginning of history. And that number was 50%, around 50%, 48%. So in other words, there was about 50% of children that didn't make it to their 15th birthday. And so you know, people had big families. You might have 10, 12, 15 kids with the expectation that half of them, perhaps, are not going to survive. I can't imagine what that would be like. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose uh, even one child, but to lose multiple children. But that was just the way of life that it was. Sadly, children just didn't make it often. And, and so it would be a mistake to say that people in that day and age didn't care about their children. They loved their children like we love our children. But they didn't have that same emotional attachment that we do. They didn't have that same financial investment in their children we, that we do because they, there was this realization that they could lose them at any time. There was a realization that some of them weren't going to make it. So they loved them, but they didn't have the relationship with their kids that we do. And so it was a different kind of culture. And this kind of created this kind of culture where children were kind of on the margins of society. They had no say, they had no power, and they were extremely vulnerable. And so when Jesus says that the disciples, and by implication us, must turn and become like little children and humble ourselves, it's not primarily a mental attitude. It's a status, status. That we must become, take that status of children. We be willing to accept that low status that children are examples of. So again, the, the question the disciples are asking is, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus essentially responds by saying, the person who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the person who isn't the greatest. The person who's greatest is the person who isn't the greatest. The person who holds the top spot in the kingdom of heaven is someone who has a really low status in the kingdom of this earth. And, and I think what Jesus is saying is you need to stop asking the question, who is the greatest? And you need to be okay without being the greatest. And honor, ironically, when we surrender that desire to become great, we become great because the people that God values most are the people who have no status, who have no say, who don't have it all together and are humble enough to admit it. And I think here lies the challenge for us as individuals and the church at large because I think we've become addicted to this idea of becoming great. I think it's true for individuals and for people, uh, for, for churches. As individuals, sometimes we come to church, and we come to church not so much to worship Christ and how great he is, but to improve ourselves so that we might become great. So we come to church, and, and we 
do religious things because maybe if I do these things, if I read my Bible, if I pray, if I go to church, then I'm becoming a good person. I'm becoming a great Christian. Like if I, if I do the right things, then I'm going to have a great marriage. If I do the right things, I'm going to become a great parent. God's going to bless me financially. He's going to shelter me from trouble. Now, certainly God wants us to grow. I'm not saying he doesn't. But sometimes I think we approach the religious things that we do more from a mindset of how can I praise God, how can I bless his name, to how can I become great? How can I become a good person? How can I feel good about myself? The Pharisees did the same thing. They prayed, they fasted. They did all sorts of religious things. More religious things than we could even imagine, more than any of us do here. But why did they do them? Not because they thought God was great, but they thought because if they did them, they would become great. And we see this throughout Scripture, that this uh, trap that people fall into. We see this in, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Of course, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not just because it, was go it looked good and you know, it looked like good food. They ate it also because they wanted to become like God. They wanted to become someone. They wanted to become great. We see this throughout history with uh, the, uh, those who built the Tower of Battle. Where they say that we want, we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to build a tower to the heavens. The people of Israel wanted to become like the other nations. We want to be a great nation. We want a king who will go out and lead us in battle. And that, that continues with the Pharisees who, yeah, we want to do religious things so that people might consider us great. And this affects the disciples as well, and it, I believe it affects all of us, each and every one of us. So there's that trap that we see in the scriptures where individuals will, will focus on their own greatness rather than worshiping and honoring and living in sons and daughters of God. And then we look throughout the scriptures and the people who really were great were not the people who were seeking greatness. They were not the people who thought, hey, like Abraham, he didn't think to himself, hey, I'm going to become this incredible nation. Like, you won't believe what I'm going to do. No, he was, him and Sarah were a childless couple in a pagan country who had no wealth, so to speak. And God comes to him and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he believes God is credited to him as righteousness, and God's the one that brings that about. You have David, shepherd boy, out in the field. He's not out in the field thinking to himself, hey, one day I'm going to take down Goliath. I mean, he was so weak, he couldn't even, so small, he couldn't even put on the armor uh, of King Saul. He wasn't thinking, someday I'm going to take down Goliath. But God used him in an incredible way to become a great king. Think about Moses, fugitive, wasn't a good speaker, wasn't the person you'd think would, who God would call, and yet God called him to lead the people out of Israel. And so Jesus gives us this prescription as individuals that if we want to become great, we need to give up the drive and desire to become that greatness is not found by seeking to become great. It's found by being like a child, loving, honoring our Heavenly Father. And if God chooses to make us great, that's His prerogative. Our job is just to live as sons and daughters of the King. And, and it seems counterfactual, but the people who are become great in the kingdom of God are people who are not trying to. Thomas Jefferson once put it this way, Power is not alluring to pure minds. People who have their minds fixed on Christ are not allured by power. But not only does Jesus show us 
how to be great in his eyes by, you know, not seeking greatness. But he also shows us what, as a church, we need to be like if we're going to be considered great. What do we need to be like as a church if we're going to be considered great in the kingdom of God? I think just like as individuals we have a path for greatness, as churches we have this kind of path for greatness in our culture. And, and we're driven by this kind of consumeristic, um, capitalistic mindset that like you have to kind of graduate up. Like there's, you know, at the bottom is like maybe a church that's kind of like in an inner city that doesn't have many resources, doesn't have much to offer, uh, the people don't have much to give back. And, and then if you kind of move up, then maybe, you, you know, maybe you're a small church and you have some resources, have some things to offer. But then if you really arrive, then maybe you have this enormous campus, uh, maybe you have hundreds or even thousands of people coming and all of these resources to offer. You have a charismatic pastor. You have great worship music. They're putting out worship music every month. And people around the world are singing it. And it's like if, if we get there, then we've arrived. I mean, like that's a great church. And that's how we view it in our culture. Those are the people that, you know, go to conferences. It's like, this is, look at my church. Look at what I've done. Look at all of this great worship music. Look at this incredible facility. Look at how great this is. That's not what God considers to be great. I think we all have it all wrong. When did church ever move from being an activity to being an expression of who we are? When did it become just about doing something, about becoming something? I mean, the people in the early church, they came together because they loved Jesus. They wanted to serve the lost. They wanted to serve the poor. They didn't come together and think, hey, we're going to become a great church. We're going to be better. You know, we're this church in Ephesus. We're going to be better than that church in Philippi. They didn't think like that. They just came together because of who they were. And somehow we've got this mindset that as churches and individuals, like our goal is to become great. That if we're going to really honor God, then, you know, we need to get there. But that's not what honors God. And Jesus shows us that in this passage. He shows us that he cares for the vulnerable. He cares for those that the world doesn't care about. And to be great in his kingdom is not becoming a great church or a great individual. To become great is to care for the people that nobody else cares about. And Jesus gives incredible warnings, sobering warnings. He says, um, anyone who causes one of these little ones, speaking of the children again, to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to, to have a millstone tied around his neck and to be thrown in the depths of the sea. It's a pretty stern warning, but that's how valuable Jesus considers children and those who are vulnerable to be. You know, and again, and I think it applies to anyone who's vulnerable, not just to uh, children particularly. He goes further, and he talks about temptations to sin, and he says if your arm causes you to sin, chop it off. If your leg causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Uh, of course, he's, I don't think he's talking literally that we're not supposed to literally, you know, maim ourselves. And, and oftentimes when I've looked at this passage, you know, I thought about like, hey, we got to be serious about how we deal with sin. You know, that there's eternal consequences for sin. And I think there, that's true. But I think in this particular context, it's even more deeper than that. In this particular context, again, he's talking about those who are vulnerable. He says that we need to become like little children. That we need to be willing to take on that low social status that children exemplify. What would happen if you 
chopped off your arm, chopped up your leg, cut off your eye, or gouged out your eye in the ancient world. If you did that, what would happen would be you would occupy a lower social space. You couldn't take care of yourself. You'd be dependent upon someone else to do everything for you. You'd be not able to engage in certain privileges in the temple, like becoming a, um, a priest. And, and so you would take a lower space in society. And I think what Jesus is saying here is it would be better for you to take a lower space in society to become like a child than to cause a child to sin, to harm someone who is vulnerable. And so he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And Jesus states his love and concern for the vulnerable. And if we're going to be a church that's great in his eyes, it's not by becoming so great that we have, you know, we're putting out worship CDs and we have thousands of people. A church that's great is a church that cares about the vulnerable. James 1.27 says this, Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If our church is to be great in God's eyes, we need to be the people who care about the, uh, the people that the world doesn't consider to be great. Care about, caring about the least of these. There's a man by the name of Paul Offit, the professor of pediatrics and vaccinology at the University of Philadelphia. And uh, he's kind of a, he was a militant atheist. He really didn't like Christians at all, kind of like someone like Richard Dawkins or um, Christopher Hitchens and kind of in that vein. And one of the reasons he didn't like Christians was because back in the 90s, 1991, there was a big measles outbreak in Philadelphia, and a number of kids got sick, uh, several of them died, and uh, the reason was they weren't vaccinated for measles, and, you know, it was a Christian group that wasn't vaccinated there. And so he had these really negative views about Christians, and he set out to write this book entitled Bad Faith, How Religious Belief Undermines Modern Belief in Medicine. But he started to do some research and kind of looked at the history of medicine, and he was shocked by what he found. As he read the Bible and explored the history of medicine, he changed his mind, and his advocate, as, as Jesus' advocacy for children moved him to tears. He concluded, independent of whether you believe in the existence of God, you have to be impressed with the man described as Jesus of Nazareth. At the time of Jesus' life, one historian said that child abuse was the crying vice of the Roman Empire. Infanticide was common. Abandonment was common. That's because children were property, no different than slaves. But Jesus stood up for children, cared about them, when those around them typically didn't. He goes on to call Christianity the single, break, the single greatest breakthrough against child abuse in history. He notes that the first Christian emperor of Rome outlawed infanticide in 315 and provided an early form of welfare in 321 so that families wouldn't have to sell their kids. Ultimately, he never became a Christian, but he ended up changing the title of his book because he realized that Jesus had this incredible heart for children and those who the world looks down upon. And if we're going to be a church that honors God, we need to be a people who care about the least of these. And so to become great as individuals, it's not by seeking greatness, it's to give up that drive and desire to become great. To become great as a church, it's by caring about the people that the world doesn't care about, the people who can't give us anything in return. And therein lies the challenge for us as believers, to lay down our pride. 
The path of greatness is the road of self-forgetfulness. If we're going to be great, we need to forget ourselves. We need to lay down our pride. We need to choose as individuals and as a church to say, hey, I don't care about how I look. I don't care about accomplishing something. I just want to be faithful to Christ. I just want to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I just want to love people around me. And no matter what that looks like, whether I'm serving the poor who can never give me anything back in an inner city or in another country, or whether I'm in this giant mega church in a suburb that people are making sick figures, wherever it is, I want to be faithful to honor Jesus in my life. That's what greatness looks like. It's loving God, loving people wherever that we're, we're at, forgetting about ourselves. And that's where we find joy and peace and significance. When we're not focused on ourselves of how great can I be or how great can my church become, but look at how great our God is. Look at how great our God is, and he is so worthy of our honor and worship that I want to give everything to him. And as we do so, we forget about ourselves. We live as sons and daughters of God. C.S. Lewis put it so well in his book, Mere Christianity. He said this, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all of you will think about him, probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's what self-forgetfulness looks like. It's not we're saying, oh, I'm a terrible person, I, I'm the scum of the earth. It's, it's that we look outside of ourselves to God and to other people. And that's where we find joy. But pride is something that we rarely admit to. Not many people say, hey, I really struggle with pride. But it's something that infects each and every one of our hearts. Richard Baxter in their form pastor wrote this, Oh, what a constant companion. What a tyrannical commander. What a sly and subtle insinuating enemy is this sin of pride. Is not pride the sin of devils, the firstborn of hell? Is it not that wherein Satan's image doth much consist? And it is much tolerated in men who are so engaged against him and his kingdom as we are. The very design of the gospel is to abase us. And the work of grace is begun and carried on in humiliation. Humility is not a mere ornament of a Christian, but an essential part of the new creature. It's a contradiction in terms to be a Christian and not be humble. During the Great Awakening, um, there was this just great movement of God through several pastors and churches. And um, one of those pastors was Jonathan Edwards, and he was holding this big prayer meeting. 800 men were coming to this prayer meeting. And uh, there was this one particular lady who sent this message to Jonathan Edwards and said, would you pray for my husband because he's very unloving and prideful and difficult and it's causing harm in my family. And so he said, sure, I'll, I'll pray for him. And so he had this big group of 800 men that came together and pr to pray. And he thought, well, maybe that person is here. And so he called them out and he said, if anyone here... I got this note from this lady that your spouse says that you're unloving, prideful, and difficult. If you're here, 
I want you to, to raise your hand, and we're going to pray for you. He was shocked when 300 people raised their hands. Pride is something that affects all of us, and honestly, probably 800 of, all 800 of them should have raised their hand. It's not something that we see out there that other people struggle with. It's something that I struggle with, something that you struggle with. And it's something that only Jesus can free us from. Because when we seek power and authority above all else, see what happens is, see what the church often does in our culture, is like we seek greatness and power and authority, and what do we do when we get that power and authority? We often use it in the same way that the world does. We oppress those who God cares about. We bless those who can bless us. So we need to forget ourselves. But as we close, what, where does that motivation come from? How can we forget ourselves? How can we give up that desire to become great, to become something great? How can we forget ourselves? I think the only, reason, the only way we can forget ourselves is to realize that God hasn't forgotten us. We talked a little bit about children. And, you know, again, in that day and age, you know, people would have lots of children with the expectation that, not everyone was going to make it. And so they would have lots of children and have that grim expectation. But imagine that one family, imagine a family for one reason or another, rather than having 10 children or 5 children or 12 children, they only have one child, one son. I imagine how much emphasis they would put in that child. Their, that child would be their only hope of being cared for when they were old. That child would be their heritage. They would do anything to protect that child. Their chi that child would be so loved and cared for. And we see in the scripture in John 3, it says that God so loved the world, God so loved you and me, that what did he give? He gave his only son. His only son who he loved. His beloved son. The pride of his heart, the one that was with him from all eternity past. That's the one he gave. And he did it for you and for me so that we might have life. And so we can choose not to become great. To give up that desire for greatness, to forget ourselves because God considers us great enough to die for us. Not because we deserve it, not because we're lovely and beautiful and have it all together, just because he loves us that much. And so we can walk that road of self-forgetfulness. We can walk down that road because Jesus hasn't forgotten us. God gave his only son so that we might have life. And so we can deny ourselves. We can take up our cross and follow Jesus even if it takes us to the cross because of the love that he's poured out in our heart. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your incredible grace, incredible mercy that you've shown us in the cross. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to focus on becoming great, becoming something, proving ourselves, because you've proven once and for all in the cross that you love us enough to send your one and only son to die for us. Lord, may that be the fuel for our love, the fuel for our obedience. Lord, we all struggle with pride.
We all struggle with this desire to become someone, to become something. But Lord, help us to lay it down at the foot of the cross and for us to all say, God, you're the one who's worthy. You're the one who's worthy of all honor and glory and power that we would fall on our knees before you. And as we fall on our knees, you'll use us for your glory in the ways that you see fit. Lord, we love you. We thank you for who you are. In Christ's name I pray.